Welcome to Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, Executive Education for the Real World. I'm Kate Joyner. This week at our Executive Centre at our Gardens Point campus in Brisbane, we've had the pleasure of hosting a range of leadership workshops by Susan Goldsworthy. So early in her career, Susan was an elite athlete and she represented Great Britain in swimming at the Montreal Olympics. Susan developed her insights into high performance into her consulting business, Goldsworth & Associates who specialise in leadership development, executive coaching and change communications. Susan is also the co-author of several notable management books, including Choosing Change and Care to Dare, Unleashing Astonishing Potential Through Secure-Based Leadership, which will be the subject of our conversation today. Hi, Susan. Hello. So you've had a big week, I think. Yeah, it's been great. Mm. Really enjoyed it. Great groups, actually. A lot of energy in the room, so it's been fabulous. So we were just having a conversation before about, uh, I mean, most of us will never experience being an elite athlete. And I was just saying I'd be the one who'd always fall into the pool um, as a swimmer. But obviously there are some, um, I guess, some transferable ideas between elite um, sport and uh, high performance organisations. Have you found that? Absolutely. Mm. In fact, the the Choosing Change book was was based around a model that I created as a swimmer when I was giving um, motivational talks to younger kids. And it's the five D's um, because actually what makes you successful as an elite athlete is exactly the same stuff that will make you successful in business or in life, in anything, right? Um, And so the first D is disruption. And so there has to be something that happens that catches your attention. So, for example, for me, it was the 1968 Mexico Olympics. I Uh saw them on television and thought, I want to do that. (laughs) Now, this is where I stop and say, and why, as as someone from Great Britain, was it swimming? It's almost like, for us, it's like the bobsled team. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that was just a little bit of disparaging humour there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I have to say, actually, that it's lovely to be in Australia, because in Australia, they actually value swimming, whereas in most parts of the world, swimming is kind of a, you know, not such a... Maybe the US. Yeah, the US as well, but Australia's really big on swimming. But yeah, no, I, I was swimming at the time and, um, you know, I watched the Olympics and it just seemed like, yes, I want to do that, you know, and so, uh, uh, and I was doing ballet and swimming and it got to the point where I had to choose one or the other and so I chose swimming. Um, but yeah, so the first one is this disruption. So what, what do you notice? What conscious choice are you making? So same in an organisational change or a personal change, you notice something and you say, oh, something comes to your attention, you make a, you know, a, it draws your attention to it, yeah? And then the second D is the desire, right? You've got to be willing to do it. You've got to want to do it, right? Um, and so I always say, score yourself out of 10 on your desire. Um, give yourself, you know, 10 is most desire, one is absolutely no desire. If your score is seven or below, forget it. You're not going to do it, right? Because... It takes a lot of effort and energy, right? To get up early in the morning. Yeah, when it's absolutely. Cold. Yeah, absolutely. And, then, and so, so the goal has to be very clear and strong enough to keep you going through the tough times, right? So, and the daily stuff that you've got to do to do this. And so then, then the third D is discipline. And so, you know, you've got, you know what you want to do. You've got the desire to do it, the passion and the energy for it. And you need to have the discipline to apply it, right? And so what are the small daily steps you can take to help you achieve your big goal? So any goal you want to achieve, break it down to small daily steps, right? What are we going to do today? What are we going to do tomorrow? What are we going to do the next day? Because it's by small steps we get big change. Yeah. Um, and then the third is, de- is determination, is you will fail, 
right? You will have setbacks because your pre-existing pattern is stronger than your existing one. And so you're not always going to be successful. The key is when you fail is to go, oh, good, I failed. What am I learning from it? And get back on. So it's this continuous improvement mindset. I'm doing well. How do I get better? Yeah. And I always use Roger Federer as an example because I live in Switzerland. He's our hero. Um, and uh, Roger Federer is arguably the best tennis player in the world. He could say, you know, look, I'm great. Don't need to do anything different. But he always has coaches, and the coaches tell him to do different things. And at one stage, one of his coaches said to him, look, you're spending too much time on the baseline. You need to come forward to the net. And Roger could have said, look, I'm in my 30s. I'm doing OK. Why bother? But he doesn't. He says, OK, I've got to do that. And so again, the best get better. Continue the best get better. So mindset. it's about, um, we've all got to, I mean, with our students, we talk about learning. Um, it has its important organisational attribute, but it's kind of, it's got a sharp edge to it these days, I think, like in terms of adaptation. We get information from our environment so that we get the right signals to adapt, as Roger Federer did. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. And then the final D is development. And this is where Secure Base comes in, which is you cannot do it by yourself. You need other people to give you feedback because our brain is fundamentally lazy, right? <laughs> uh, number one job of the brain is to keep you alive and therefore, you know, any uncertainty is a threat. So the brain is looking to routinize as much as possible to keep you safe. And so, you know, you need an external party who looks at you and says, do this differently, try this, do this, you know. Um, because if you don't have that, you can fool yourself <laughs> within that you're doing fine. <laughs> right? mm. And so it's having an external party. Now, this is where the secure base comes in, because the external party has to be someone you trust enough that when they give you the tough feedback that you don't want to hear, you will listen. Right? If, you, if there isn't the psychological safety, if you don't trust them enough, then you're not going to listen to the feedback. You'll be defensive. And so you have to know that they have your best interests at heart. And then they're going to challenge you. So they support you, they care for you, but they're going to stretch and challenge you as well. So that's what we'd say, really, the, the definition of uh, care today. So it's the both it, uh, secure-based leadership. So uh, we, uh, I'll talk about Meg Wheatley in a moment. She was certainly on the care part. But I think um, this particular model focuses both on the caring. So you've got to care enough to invest some time in this person uh, or group of people. Um, but then there's the dare, so you've got you, you challenge and, and inspire. Have I got your model? Uh, Absolutely mm. spot on, yeah. You know, the care, it's not about liking or being friends. Mm -hmm. It's about Rogerian thinking, you know, unconditional positive regard. You have every right to be in the universe at the same time as me, simply because you're alive, right? So it's that respect. And then you have my interests at heart. I feel that you care about me doing well. Right? So, so that then when you stretch and challenge me, when you give me tough feedback to help me grow, I'm going to listen. Now, we all have people in our lives who support us. That's great. We all want people who support us. But you also want to have secure bases who support you but also stretch you. So this might be where you go and start complaining to them about something. If someone's just a supportive presence in your life, they'll go, oh, yes, that's awful, how terrible, yeah, oh, oh dear, right? They'll support mm. you through it. Right? An emotional uh, yeah, support. Yeah, the emotional yeah. support. Whereas a secure base will say, well, actually, perhaps there's a point here. You know, so they'll challenge you in that moment. They won't mm. just empathise. They'll empathise, but they'll also stretch and challenge you. you know? And that's when you get the secure base. They're pushing you out of your comfort zone. Mm. That's where growth occurs, outside a comfort zone. 
Um, you know, I discovered something this year which is quite fascinating. It's about lobsters, uh, which always seems a little bit random. But uh, lobsters are actually a mushy creature inside a rigid shell. And what happens is the lobster grows, the mushy, and then it starts butting up against the shell, right? Because the shell doesn't grow. And so what the lobster has to do in order to grow is it has to go behind a rock to protect itself from predators, which is its secure base, right? Shed its shell, it grows larger, and then it grows a new shell. Then it goes out again. You know, the stimulus for the lobster to grow is that it feels uncomfortable. Feels uncomfortable, or and if it's not a sustainable place to be. Mm. Exactly. And, so, and it's a risk, right? You might get eaten by predators. So you, you need a secure base, but it's a risk and a challenge to step outside your comfort zone. But if you can do it, then that's where the growth comes. Mm. So, I mean, your co-author said that uh, he's observed leaders who've, who've lacked secure bases. And I think that probably carries in, uh, through your whole professional life, really, if you've never felt that you've had the, the place or the time or the space or the care uh, to, for someone to give you that kind of feedback. So you might go through your professional life with um, you know, all kinds of flaws that no one's ever bothered to point out to you. Or that, uh, yes, this just hasn't been that opportunity for you to grow as a professional in a safe way. Uh, and those who have, so, and he can notice the difference. So those of us who have had the, um, the privilege, I suppose, of having a leader who can both care and challenge, um, is there a difference that you observe with those leaders who have and those who haven't? Well, I think the important thing here is also to remember the responsibility of the individual, right? So we all have choice. <laughs> yeah. And so sometimes people aren't willing to trust people enough to stretch and challenge oh, them. I see. So we might have had secure base leaders around us. And we Absolutely. Had, uh, we haven't had the opportunity. We haven't availed ourselves of exactly. the opportunity. Exactly. You know, and Einstein said, you know, there's one fundamental question for all human beings is do you view the universe as friendly or do you view the universe as hostile? And depending on how you view it is how you are in the world, right? And so it's important to allow people in enough to create the connections and the bonds that then you can be stretched and challenged, right? So if we've, if we've um, and this might go to our early beginnings uh, in the way that we see the world, is that right? Can so be. if um, the world has seemed a bit of a, um, a threatening place, uh, we may never build that kind of trust, so we may be preconditioned. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. I, I was extremely fortunate uh, as a child, right? I decided I wanted to be a swimmer, Olympic swimmer, right? Um, I'm not particularly big, right? I'm five foot four. My hands and feet are normal size, right? Most top swimmers are pretty big. <laughs> right? They're large, you know. Um, and when I was very young and swimming, people used to say to my coach and they used to say to my parents, you know, it's a shame Susan's not bigger because she's never going to make it because she doesn't have the right physique. And I used to hear that, because kids hear what other people say, and I used to think, idiots, you know, morons, they've got no idea. I'm like Speedy Gonzalez, you know, I get in that water and I'm super fast, right? Um, and the reason I thought that was because I had a grandfather who was a flyweight boxer, and he was a small guy, and we used to skip together, and he used to say to me, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, and the best things come in small packages. And so he framed my thinking that I actually believed it was an advantage to be small. So much so that when I was at the European Championships, where I got a bronze medal in the tournament butterfly behind uh, two East Germans, as I went round I for the finals, I turned round and behind me was six foot two Tamara Shalefastova from Russia. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to let her beat me. She's too big. 
you know. And that was my grandfather's framing, making a massive difference to how I viewed the world. And Carol Dweck, who's written mm -hmm. a brilliant book called The Growth Mindset, Stanford professor, um, she says, you know, what people believe shapes what they achieve. And so what we were interested in in the Care Today book was why do people believe what they believe? And it's usually people in our lives that have helped us frame our thinking and to turn the spotlight away from the negative and the loss to the positive and the gain. Yeah. And so it's, the question is, who are the people in our lives who have helped us grow and learn without us even realizing it? You know, I never realized my grandfather had been a secure base until later in life when I was researching the work, right? Mm, and you could frame it in that yeah, way. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. So there you go, you were a butterfly, right? I was indeed, a butterfly. Yeah. So and you needed yeah. shoulders for butterfly. Butterfly is a technique stroke. Mm. And so if you get the technique right, you fly. Whereas people tend to think it's about strength. So I think you must have, so our great um, Brisbane butterfly was Susie O'Neill. Oh, butterfly. of course. Yeah. Yes, yes. yes. And here's yeah, my claim to fame. So I was a high school teacher before oh. and I taught her. That's how old I am. <laughs> Susie <laughs> O'Neill was, was a ninth, uh, ninth grader. When, um, Wonderful. Yes, Wonderful. but already an elite athlete, even at year nine. But yeah, it's a difficult event, I think. Well, again, you know, how do you frame it? Mm -hmm. So if you frame it as difficult, ah. it's going to feel difficult. So you frame it as something you love and it's great. Guess what? It's something you love and it's great. And so we all have the power to direct what our brain thinks. Where do we choose to put our focus? If we say, gosh, this person's awkward and difficult, you know, and this conversation is going to be tough, guess what? You're telling your brain, <laughs> this is awkward and difficult, this is going to be tough. And so you have to frame it to your brain. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to resolve an issue together. And then you're putting yourself in a much better physiological and psychological state in order to have a better impact. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which, um, so, I mean, when I was preparing for the interview, I was thinking about um, the nature of 21st century leadership and whether the idea about uh, secure is something that's becoming a little bit more elusive. So that, I mean, as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, we did um, speak with Meg Wheatley, um, who was thinking that uh, leaders these days often um, lack, you know, a leader above them who, who can support them and the things, the, their endeavours um, can turn around and turn to nothing pretty quickly. So I guess having just come from the US, she was noticing, for example, the deterioration in uh, the public sector at the moment. So that um, people who've devoted their lives to environmental causes or to foreign affairs suddenly find their, their endeavours turn to nothing, you know, mm. turn to ash in a moment. So mm. the idea that, um, but I mean, she was very strong on the idea that even when things um, turn sour very quickly and there doesn't seem to be a lot of security, that we as leaders can, within the scope um, of our influence, uh, create creates, uh, some ideas about challenge um, and sense-making, even though that um, things, our environment looks fairly insecure. Uh, is, is that how you'd Absolutely. Well? Mm -hmm. I mean, you talked about, you know, circles of influence and, you know, mm. a, a wonderful model, you know, um, Covey's model, uh, circle of influence, circle of concern, right? So is this something that I can do anything about? Is it in my circle of influence or is it in my circle of concern? If it's my circle of concern, I can't change it in any way. Like, for example, I travel a lot. If I get to the airport and my flight's delayed, you know, <laughs> my first reaction is, ah, flight's delayed, right? But I'm yet to get to an airport and then say, oh, it's Susan, we'll bring the flight forward, right? I can't influence it. It's my circle of concern. And so then I have a choice. 
Do I stay stuck in the negative, in which case I'm releasing all sorts of negative chemicals into my system, getting myself stressed, you know, spreading that stress to the people around me? Or do I say, okay, I have a choice, right? What can I do with the two hours I didn't think I was going to have? And in an airport, there's lots of things I can do. You know, I can read a book, I can do emails, I can drink, shop, you know, all sorts of things I can do, right? And so it's that key of saying, okay, is this my circle of concern or is it my circle of influence? If it's my circle of concern, can't do anything about it, let it go, it's wasted energy, what can I focus on, right? What can I focus on influencing and doing something positive about? Where can I put my energy that then puts me into a positive state and helps the people around me feel inspired as well? I guess in the US they've experienced quite a lot of uh, turbulence, at least in the public sector, mm -hmm. even though you know, the stock price is doing pretty well. We are anticipating going into a period uh, generally where we can find that organisations will be changing shape and form probably pretty rapidly. I'm sure in the retail sector in Australia anytime soon we'll experience quite a, <coughs> a lot of rapid um, shifts and also in banking, I think, any of those industries that will be affected by digitisation, I suppose. So that leaders um, probably need to help their people make sense of that, yes. um, even if they find themselves displaced by it or yes. not really finding many secure places to rest yes. themselves. It's quite a challenge, I think, for the leader of the 21st century if you find yourself in one of those industries. It's not easy. Yeah. Well, I think most industries, because everything's going to be affected by digitalisation, mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I remember, you know, being similar age group, and, and um, back in the 80s, we thought technology would make our lives so much easier and would give us so much more leisure time, right? That was the general view, that advancing technology is done the opposite, right? Because now you're accessible 24-7, you know, work, the boundaries between work and non-work have, have slipped completely, you know, they're not clear. And so now the onus comes on each of us to manage ourselves differently, you know, and to make choices to give ourselves rest, to give ourselves break, to exercise, to not be totally at the control of your iPhone or 24-7, mm. <laughs> right? Or maybe not even to put all your identity into the industry that you, that you happen to find yourself in at any particular Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we talk about the two legs, right? In order to be grounded and to be healthy, we, we, you have to stand firm on your two legs. And one leg is acceptance, the need to belong, the need to be, you know, we're a social species, so we want to be part of something, yeah? And the other is achievement, right? We, we want to have meaning, purpose, that kind of thing. And so if you have both those legs, then you're grounded. Then you're in a calm state. Then you can be a secure base. If you, if you only have one of them, you can stand for a while, but you're going to fall over, right? And so I think the onus is on leaders in an uncertain environment, in a VUCA world, right, is to help themselves and others recognize the pain. Because one of the big mistakes we see leaders make is they rush to solutions, right? And, while they, and then they're in solutions and they look at everybody else and they're like, oh, they're so negative. Well, they're negative because they're in shock, denial, and anger. They're, you know, they're in a different stage of the grief curve, right? Um, and so you have to come back and say, okay, what don't we like about this? What concerns us? Let's get it out. Write it up on post-it notes. Stick it all around the walls, right? Let's, let's talk about what we don't like. And what we see from the neuroscience is if you express what you don't like, it reduces the negative emotion in the amygdala. So actually, you're less upset because you've had a chance to express it. Then once you've expressed it, you say, okay, so concern, right? This is stuff we don't like, but we can do nothing about. What can we do stuff about? What can we influence? 
And then you move yourself and other people into a much more proactive, positive state. And, they, and you can move into actions that you can actually do something about. Yeah. And so that shifts that dynamic of feeling trapped in the neg negative stuff, moves you into what can we do. Mm. Yeah. So we can take that on board personally. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, part of our so, journaling is uh, like to, to get out, uh, yes, just get out all the... The, uh, the reactive. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. find that's a useful practice. Absolutely. Journaling's huge. Yeah, yeah. But we can do it collectively as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and, you know, one simple technique is, is uh, work with senior executives to write the frustrations on a post-it note, right? So you write down what's annoying you. You then screw it up and you throw it away, right? Um, and actually one of, uh, one of the people I work with, the executive assistant, says she can tell us what sort of day her boss has had by the pile of post-its. Ah, <laughs> right. he's, he's getting out the reaction. Exactly, yeah. but, but it's getting it out, right? Mm. You know, and so it's really important to express what you don't like and then move into let it go. Let right. it go, yeah. yeah. Well, it's certainly secure-based leadership is a concept that we have used and explored with many groups. I mean, Google did a 15-year study into what makes high-performing teams. And the number one criteria was psychological safety. Psychological safety. Do we feel safe enough on the team to take risks without feeling insecure and embarrassed? That's secure-based leadership. And right. we haven't uh, uh, drawn in the um, metaphor that we usually use, which is the leader as the layer. So, right. Which is, I think, exactly. so metaphors are always great. So the leader at the bottom of the, the cliff and uh, yeah. and your team member climbing the, the cliff face. Climbing the cliff with, face. Um, yes. Exactly. With a base. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, an example I use there is also, you know, when a child's learning to ride a bike and you hold the back of the saddle. You hold the saddle at first because you want to be in incubation, you want to support them while they're learning. If you never let go, they'll never learn to ride the bike. Mm. So you have to take the risk of letting go of control, <laughs> right? to allow them to try themselves. When they first try, they'll wobble and probably fall. If when they fall, you say, oh, you're an idiot, you're stupid, I'm gonna do it myself, and you get on the bike and ride, they don't learn, right? So then you have to know that they're gonna fail because they're learning, and so you say, great, you're doing really well, get back on, try again, right? That's what a secure base does in business, is you allow a space where it's safe to fail. And in fact, some organizations I work with, they actually give their employees a get out of jail free card from you know, Monopoly. Um, and so at a monthly meeting, they'll say, okay, who's got a get out of jail free card to play? You know, who's had a failure? What have you learned from it? And then they share it. And then you create an environment which is much more playful, curious, innovative, and creative. Yeah, where innovation is more likely to prosper. Exactly. Now, Susan, I have, didn't give you this question, but it's something that we ask all our participants, um, which is, what are you reading? So you've got a big flight ahead of you. I have, <laughs> yes, I what, have. What are you going to be reading on that flight? So I, I have two books with me, um, but the one I'm reading at the moment is The Science Delusion by Rupert Sheldrake, who's a fascinating individual. I highly recommend uh, people to listen to him. Um, but also because it's looking at the interconnectivity, not just between people, but also with the planet which I think, as you were saying earlier, is becoming uh, a major issue, right? Um, and something we all need to become more aware of and concerned about is how are we existing productively? How are being a secure base in the total planetary terms with the environment and everything? Um, because there's a danger. The world will be fine without us. The world will survive. <laughs> it's human beings <laughs> that may have the problem. When people say, you know, oh my gosh, you know, the planet won't survive. No, the planet will survive in one shape or form, but human beings may not, if we're not more careful, if we're not more considerate, if we're not respectful, and take more risks about looking after. What do we need to do differently? 
right? What, are, what past success trap, what have we been doing in the past that may not be helpful in the future? Oh, excellent. So, All right. Have you already got it or are you buying it at the airport? No, I've got it. I'm halfway through. So I've got to read the remaining half. Yeah. Well, Susan's en route back to Geneva, so we all know what that flight is like, so we'll, we'll need to let her go, but we've enjoyed having you here at the centre um, for the whole week, and um, we hope to host you again. Fabulous. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Exec Insights. For more information about QUT's executive education programs, please search QUT Executive Education, and you'll find a full range of our programs and services.